This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger. And today, I cannot believe that I am finally welcoming Pascal Hutton to the YVR Screen Scene Hot Seat. I've never heard a bad word said about Pascal Hutton. And I've heard a lot of bad words said about most people in this industry. When Pascal's name comes up, directors and producers and even our biggest stars always sigh and say something like, oh, isn't she wonderful and so talented and so nice? I make no bones about it. I'm a Pascal Hutton fan. I'm a Pascal Hutton stan. What I admire most about Pascal is that she is a true genre hopper. The woman can do it all. The proof is in the work. So I got receipts from the beleaguered Juliana on Chris Haddock's Intelligence, a role for which she won a Gemini Award for Best Performance by an Actress in a Guest Role. Thank you very much. To FBI Special Agent Abby Corrigan on Sanctuary, a role that required her to tangle with abnormals, kick ass, and also famously sing, to pilot Krista Iverson on Arctic Air, and now to actress turned dress store clerk to who knows what else, Rosemary Coulter on Hallmark's wildly popular When Calls the Heart, and in a multitude of Hallmark rom-coms, Pascal shines bright in sci-fi, in high drama, in action adventure, and family fair. Not everybody can say that. So today I want to know how this award-winning fan favorite, industry favorite, and critically acclaimed human became the person she is today. I want to talk about Juliana and Abby and Krista and Rosemary and where these characters overlap with who Pascal is as a human being. And I want to talk about, honestly, I'll talk about anything Pascal wants to talk about because she's Pascal Hutton, dagnabbit. Pascal Hutton. Welcome. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. What an intro. What an intro. (laughs) Okay, so I always give my guests the opportunity to respond to the intro. So do you you have a rebuttal? Do you have any response? Did I get anything wrong? No, I mean, it's all there. I feel mostly my my response is so flattered. I'm so flattered that um, to hear all those lovely things said about me by you. It's not flattering. It's true. Can't be flattering if it's true. Well, maybe it can be. I mean, you can feel good about I think it, but it it's true. Both. I think it can be both, but I am very flattered. And um, I've been a fan I, for a long just time. Made me feel, that just made me feel really warm and fuzzy. <laughs> good, I'm glad. I'm, before we started, um, I was pointing out to, I don't know why I'm pointing as if fans can see. This is an audio podcast. But I'm wearing the Arctic Air button that I got at the very first, like, 
CBC winter season upfront, something like that, uh, many years ago, which is when I first met you and when I first interviewed you. And I've interviewed you many times over the years on red carpets and for print, but this is your first podcast appearance. So my first podcast appearance. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Or your iPad is happy to be here because that's the name <laughs> that you've registered under. All right, Pascal's iPad. Let's talk. You want to do some time travel? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, what is your time travel vehicle of choice? We're not actually going to get into a time travel vehicle, but if we were, what would we travel in? You know, that I've, whenever I've envisioned time travel and, you know, we've been talking about this quite a lot recently in my house, oh. I've actually never envisioned a vehicle. I've always envisioned it more as a almost like a mental thing. Like I, it's so funny, the things that you envision unconsciously. And then when somebody asks you the question, you go, oh yeah, that's what I was. So I've always envisioned that you kind of just like close your eyes and then you teleport somewhere, no machine needed. Oh, so okay. I guess I just feel like I'm the vehicle. You are, you are the vehicle. Well, I, I, okay, so I'll hold on to you as you close your eyes. I wanna go back in time to, I mean, our kids are like our, our first, your firstborn, my daughter, they're, they're 10, right? So let, yeah. I want to go back to 10 because it's mm -hmm. such a pure age, mm -hmm. you know, that, like I, my daughter, at least she knows what she wants. She feels things very deeply. She's very passionate and you can't tell her no about anything. She has it all figured out. I mean, honestly, I will have what she's having. Um, <laughs> so, so first of all, where, where are we going? Um, and uh, yeah, I want to know, you know, what kind of a kid you were and what you wanted to be when you grew up. Okay, I'm closing my eyes. I'm holding on to you. Wait, do I have to close my eyes? Sure, you can close your eyes. Okay. So we're transporting back to the year 1989. Okay. And we arrive in Creston, B.C., which is the southern interior of BC, which is very picturesque. There's lots of farms, it's uh, lots of orchards. And me and my family, I had, uh, I had a mom and a dad and two sisters. Both my parents had been married before and had daughters and then got divorced and then got married and combined their families. And my sisters um, uh, saw their other parents, uh, you know, uh, custody things were different back then. And so we were together. My sisters would see their other parents maybe once or twice a year. But other than that, we were the family unit. So I never have ever thought of my sisters as half sisters or we were the family unit. So there were three girls and my mom and my, my mom and my dad, and we lived on a 10 acre farm. My parents were both teachers. Uh, and uh, we just had this big property and my parents really, really believed in have, letting their kids have space and freedom to creatively explore. And mm. I really took advantage of that. We had this old barn at the back of, well, kind of at the back of our property and I would, and it was run down. Like it was a decrepit old barn, but my dad hung a trapeze from the rafters of it and then covered the floor of the barn in old mattresses. Mm -hmm. And I would, that's where I would be always. I was there every day after school on weekends. I would just be there. It was very, very, we lived out in the country. So 
I loved friends, but friends weren't widely accessible to me. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just run across the street and visit Susan. Like there, I didn't have friends just like readily available to me, like kids in the city. And so I had my sisters, which was great, but they were both older than me. So I was very content to just let my imagination go and, and play. And, and I had many imaginary friends, many imaginary friends, and I would just kind of I would just go. I would just be in that world uh, for hours and hours. And my dad would kind of every once in a while walk by the barn to just make sure that I was still alive because it was very, it was not the safest safest (laughs) destination for me to play. But um, yeah. And so, and I loved, I loved school. I had two parents who were very, very passionate about teaching and uh, teaching out kind of outside the box. My dad taught a gifted program uh, and my mom at that time was teaching, my mom was actually at that time teaching drama. Uh, yeah, elementary school drama. So because I was in a small town, she would travel from, to all the different elementary schools each week. So one Mondays would be one school, another. And so I had both my parents as teachers. Um, I was in the gifted program, which was one day a week. And then the the drama, my, my mom would come to my school one, once a week or once every two weeks or something. And so, yeah, it just, uh, which I loved. I never thought that was weird having my parents as teachers. That felt very normal. Mm. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, so that was kind of, that was kind of how my life was. Uh, just a lot of creative, uh, open, unstructured play. I was not heavily, uh, scheduled in activities it was a lot of freedom and I as a reflection now as being a mother I really really try and hold on to that and I think it's harder I think the well you don't have a barn I don't have a barn for one but uh (laughs) but the pressure I feel like in today's age to have your kid in so many activities and not feel like they or you as a parent are falling behind yeah is uh, that pressure is real. And then on top of that, I just think, um, I don't know, in the city, there seems like there's, there's more opportunities accessible to you. And so sometimes it can feel like, oh gosh, well, why wouldn't I want to put my kid in this activity and this activity? And there's this, okay, well, we should try that out. And then the next thing you know, your kid is always structured. You're always scheduled and you haven't given any space for them to just explore and that play. is probably the, for to play to yeah. play and if I can look back on and think of the one thing that was the biggest influence on me as an actor it's that I, I had endless time to just play and play on my own and imagine and and that that I think has taught me more about being an actor than almost anything else wow what were some of the stories that you were acting out when you're in the barn like and and who were your imaginary friends well, I had... And are they here with us right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to confess that. That's going to, like, paint me into, like, a box of, like, Pascal's in crazy town. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, I had a lot. I had a lot of <laughs> imaginary friends. And some of them I remember and some of them I don't. But my mom, my mom documented it all because I would tell i would tell my family all about it because for a long time, because I was so much younger than my sister's, they would come home from school and then at dinner they would be telling the whole family about uh 
all their their activities during the school day and I didn't have any of that to contribute so I would just make my own stuff up I'd say oh well at my school day so and so was doing this and so and so and I had the same characters so um there the two that I remember they were twins and they were the good CD and the bad CD and the good CD was very good and always always followed the rules but the bad CD was not so good and she would do things like swear at her mother and spit on her sisters and I enjoyed quite a bit telling my family about these these stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah and be grateful that I'm not like her okay I'm not yeah. like the bad CD <laughs> so what about when was there a moment when you articulated I'm ass- I'm always assuming that actors in their origin stories have a moment where it's like I am going to be an actor um Please don't break that illusion for me. But seriously, though, when like when did you when did you know that this was the career path that, that you or the passion, the calling that you were going to follow? And then, you know, and what did your what did your family and um, bad CD think of it? <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> because I was in a small town, I honestly, even though everything was pointing in that direction, my mom was a drama teacher. She was, even before she was a drama teacher, she was putting on, because she stayed home. She was a stay-at-home mom until I was about nine or 10 years old. Yeah. So she she was always creating opportunities for performance for us. So she would invite all the kids in the neighborhood, which was far reaching because we were in the country, but she would she would call everybody and, and she would just say to all the parents, I'm going to take your kids for the day we're going to put on a circus, come show up at our house, uh, show up in our backyard at around three o'clock and we'll be performing a circus. And that was just a normal occurrence at our house. We had a whole shed separate from our house that was costumes, like not a costume box, not like not a tickle trunk. It was in a a huge shed that was just, my mom would go to, um, we didn't have a Salvation Army, but the equivalent of, and she would just find Uh, vintage old pieces anything that looked interesting she was a seamstress so she would mix and match things that had cool fabrics and she created all these costumes so she would and then some she would write plays for us to perform and so like and then I was in opera lessons I was in piano lessons I was in dance lessons periodically throughout my childhood can I just say though like just to interject Pascal hearing all of this if I was your mom, I would be surprised if you were like, I'm going to be a country vet or something else. Like it was like you had the kind of like that the, you're you literally grew up like in this big, giant, dramatic playhouse, you know? It's- I did. I did. And yet because I was in a small town, it just never occurred to me. I didn't know that there were Canadian actors making a living. I just didn't. Mm. I kind of thought there's Hollywood and then that's it. I own what I saw of adults performing in theater was like community theater. And so I thought, Oh, you have a job and then I'll do this as my hobby kind of, that's what I always envisioned. And then, but I was still doing it all. Like it was my passion. I was very involved in all of it. But then I had a new drama teacher came to my high school when I was in grade 10. And 
she just opened my whole perspective up and she just was like, this is what you're meant to do. You need to pursue this. This is a career and you should be pursuing it. And so she really opened up my mind, but also my parents' mind of the different avenues I could take to make that happen. And that, and just that there were many different avenues an actor in Canada could take. I just, I just didn't know. I just didn't know about that. And so she got me hooked up with, there's a camp called Arts Trek in Alberta for uh, like teenage performers. And so she got me hooked up to go to that, which connected me to performers from across Canada, uh, teenagers. So that was really eye-opening. And running the camp were professional actors and dramaturgs and uh, writers and voice coaches and singers. And so that was eye opening for me. And then I, and then she said, you, you should really look into the different theater programs across Canada. Um, so, and, and so when I was still in high school, I applied and auditioned for Juilliard and I didn't know that, there was a thing as not as failing. I just, it had never really happened in a small town. I was a big fish. So I auditioned for Juilliard when I was 17. And when I look back on it, I go, Oh my gosh, I was so naive. And that was such a terrible audition at the time. I just didn't get it. And I felt devastated, but it was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me early on. I, I mean, you always have your greatest growth from your biggest failures and that was just a big eye-opening thing of if you're going to do this, you've got to learn how to dust yourself off and pick yourself back up and oh keep my going. God, what a good lesson, especially. In- yeah. When you're just starting out, like that was a huge lesson for me. And so, and how much do you really want it? How much do you really want it? You know, they, that's a common thing. I think a lot of actors, I think I heard, heard uh, Matt Damon say this, that it, somebody asked him, Oh, if your kids ever came to you and asked you if they wanted to be an actor, what would you say? Or do, if a young actor comes to you and says, I want to be an actor. What do you think? He's always, he's, he said, my answer is always don't do it because if they listen to me, they were never going to make it in the first place. Like if they actually listen to me, like, what does my opinion mean? Nothing. But if they take, if they actually take that to heart, they were never going to make it. Um, and I, I think there's some, I think there's some value in that, yeah. that you really ultimately got to find that belief in yourself as difficult as that is. So, um, and you always had that belief. You've always had that belief in, in yourself. Well, I mean, but it was, it's tested over and over again. Like, especially early on, I feel like I didn't get into Juilliard. That was devastating. So then I went, I applied to the university of Alberta, which has a BFA program. Yeah, You can't apply to it right out of the gate though. You have to have a year of post-secondary under your belt. So I went there to do like a, a first year of kind of general studies with a focus on fine arts uh, and then I applied and uh, didn't get in, didn't get in again. I, f- I was put on the wait list. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll do another year. And, um, and then the second time I applied, I got in. And so did three years of that program. And it was really, it was really grueling. Anybody who knows a conservatory acting program knows that that's like, just nose to the grindstone. You're work, you're, you know, you're at the theater working and, on your voice, on your body, on your movement, on your 
scripts like all the time, so many hours. And uh, yeah, and then I came out of that and I thought, okay, great. Now I'm going to, I'm just going to make it as an actor. And of course it was like one step forward, two steps back for quite a while, which is just normal. Um, But when my parents, when I came to my parents and said that I was going to become an actor, they were really, they were really supportive. My one thing that my mom really wanted, and I think my dad too, is they really wanted me to, they were not keen, nor was I, and I wasn't planning on doing this, but they were not keen on me just like moving to Vancouver and getting an agent and starting to work. Hmm. They were like, we would really like you to get a degree. Like we want you to get a post-secondary education. And I was keen on that too. And I, I really look back on that as a valuable thing because it's a different learning curve when, when money is on the line, when you are expected to deliver a product that is monetarily valuable to your producers or your network or whoever's hired you rather than if you're in a program, the end goal is really just your own enrichment, your own development. And that's a, that's a really different end goal. Yeah. uh, That I think it isn't high stakes when you're, when you're in it, right? It's it's high stakes, but it's just different. You can, I, I feel like you can immerse yourself in the process a lot deeper than I mean, time is money. We all know that. Like, on whether you're in a theater company or whether you're on a film set, time is money, and you're just not usually afforded the time to really dig deep and and explore just for the sole purpose of exploring. You're, that just doesn't happen. I've never seen it. What kind of career did you want then? So you have you've graduated, and you're just you're like, look out, world, Pascal's here. I'm assuming again, part of your origin story. I'm just assuming, you know. But what kind of career did you want when you first began? Yeah, I really. And how was that different? I'm sorry, like just. And then, what do you want now? Like, how has that changed? What you wanted then versus what you want now? Well, it's changed significantly because I really, again, my program that I did was a theater program in Alberta, like in Edmonton. And the really the, the scene in Edmonton is a theater scene. There's almost no film scene in Edmonton. So again, I did not have exposure to Canadian actors making a living in film and TV. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that as a frame of reference. So I really thought I was going to be a theater actor. All my training was in that. And I loved, loved theater. Mm. Thought So I thought that that's where I was going to end up. And then when me and my class, there was 12 of us who were together for three years doing this program. And then when we graduated, we went on a cross Canada audition tour. So we rented a couple of vehicles and we drove across Canada and we auditioned at all the major theater companies from like, we did Calgary, all the theater companies in Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Saskatchewan. We, I think we went to, um, we went to Regina and then we did, We did Winnipeg and then we did Toronto and we didn't do the Maritimes. Then we drove all the way back and we did Vancouver and did a bunch of theater companies here. And so, but during that audition tour where I was really hoping to get some theater work, did not get any theater work, but uh, got uh, an agent, um, came to one of them, came to one of the things, an agent from Calgary. And she phoned me and she said, I'd really like to sign you. And start putting you out for auditions. And I just was thought, oh, what the heck? Like, sure, why not? Like, might as well. While I'm trying to hustle up some theater, I might as well do that. 
So she sent me on my first audition, which was a horror movie, Ginger Snaps, the sequel. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, and I got a callback and I went to the callback and uh, the director and the producers were there and they, they had this funny thing where they wanted me to do the scene, do the scene, but they wanted me to interject as many swear words into the scene as I could. And I just really went for that. <laughs> I was really into the swearing. And, uh, and so I booked, the part. I booked the part. I got really into it. And I think I was more crass than any other, than any other actress who came in and did that. I don't so believe I, it. I don't believe it. You, you're the nice, the nice girl, the nice farm girl who's, you know, this is bad seating. This, this is, is my bad seating. This is the bad seating in me coming out. So I, so I booked it. And so I booked my very first thing that I auditioned for and I was really excited about that I I showed up on set and uh, didn't know how to I didn't know how to read a call sheet so I didn't know what scenes we were filming like it, I was going to be on set for a number of days it was like a supporting role and so I was I was in for quite a few days but I didn't know how to read a call sheet I didn't know how to read a one-liner and so I showed up with my whole part memorized like I had I had prepped it like a like a stage play I was just ready to go um showed up and I ended up first off I showed up and I had a room in the honey wagon which I'm I don't know anyone who's listening is like it's a tiny tiny little like piece of a trailer it's like a closet basically but it was my own and I was so excited I you was had a thrilled. trailer I mean it doesn't I matter if you're sharing it with my lots of other trailer. people I phoned my husband and I was like <laughs> you will not believe this I've got, he wasn't even my husband at the time, my fiance, we were engaged. And I was like, you are not going to believe this. I have my own trailer. Life could not have gotten better. And then I sat there for eight hours, eight hours. They didn't use me. And I was just sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And then finally they rushed me to set and they said, okay, we're ready. We're ready for you, Pascal. We're ready. Keep in mind, I didn't know what we were doing because I didn't know how to read a, uh, a call sheet. So I didn't even know what scenes we were going to be filming. So story. they rushed me to set, which was in this old abandoned um, like mental hospital from like the old days. They rushed me to the set. I get on the set and I'm, and I'm standing there. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, okay, stand there, Pascal. I'm standing there. And then they're like, they don't even rehearse. They just are like, okay, you're, <laughs> you're going to stand there. Um, okay, rolling, action. And the lead actress walks by me and kind of looks at me. <laughs> and the camera, it's a wonder. The camera comes back. I had no idea what had happened. I didn't know what scene we had just filmed. I didn't know... What I was supposed to do, I had no idea what was going on and no one told me. And they were like, cut. And I, <laughs> I turned to one of the background performers who was near me and I was like, what just happened? What are we filming right now? And uh, the background performer was looking at me going, why don't you know? You're one of the That's in the scene. <laughs> Uh, anyways, I, I eventually, so definitely finding my sea legs on that one 
and it ended up being fine. I figured out how to how to read what scenes I was supposed to be filming. But it was, I remember <laughs> just the sheer terror and shock of this scene and having no idea what was happening. But did Literally, they use it? Did they use it in the edit? Like, are you there if, like, with whatever look on your face, yeah, you're not acting, yeah. you're just wondering what's going on and then did yeah. they use that? Yeah. Yeah, that's what's in there. That's what's in there is just me having no idea what, what we just filmed, what was being filmed. I had no idea. So that was that was funny. And then so then after that, that happened and that ended up opening up a bunch of doors for me. Uh, the casting director who cast that movie, she phoned me and said, I really think you need to get representation um outside of calgary and uh she said i'm going to recommend a few people for you um in vancouver and so in the meantime i think i booked two other things while i was in calgary um and and one was one was like a lead role in a movie of the week yeah uh hollywood wives oh. with um farrah fawcett and oh my god yeah she farrah fawcett played my mom and uh, Robin Givens was in it, and Melissa Gilbert was in it. And I remember this. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Uh, but I think it, I think my husband actually did some visual effects for this film. This was like two thousand and three ish. Yes, there was, yes. A, there was a scene that there needed to be a big fancy swimming pool, but there wasn't a big fancy swimming pool on set. And so I think Paul was part of a team that created the big That's fancy hilarious. swimming pool in in post in visual effects. That is so funny. <laughs> well, so that, and that was a big break for me, like, cause that was a lead role. And, and so it was that, that then I, then everybody while I was doing that movie was like, you cannot stay in Calgary. Like, and during this time, I, all my work that I was getting was in film and TV. I wasn't booking any theater work. And I sort of thought, okay, the universe seems to be telling me something. What did you feel though, as an artist? Like, you know, because you are, you were, had been so laser focused on theater and you'd been training up in theater, you're going on this theater tour. And then the film and team industry is like, no, Pascal, come here. You had that experience on the set where you didn't know what was going on. Like you did find your, you did get your footing there eventually, but were you enjoying the film and TV work? Were you envisioning a career? you know, in this industry that was trying to drag you away from theater. I, I wasn't, I don't think I was that conscious of it. I was more just so excited that I was working as an actor. And I was starting to wrap my head around that, that, that idea of whatever you can get to work as an actor is great. And I was just so excited. I was learning so much from auditioning and from being on set that it was just really exciting. It was a really exciting place to be a part of. And so, so yeah, so I, so I wasn't really thinking, I still wasn't thinking that film and TV was my new chosen career path. Mm -hmm. I kept on thinking and I kept on trying to pursue theater. I kept on, but it's felt like, it, through my whole career, it has felt like every time I've pursued theater, a film and TV gig would get in the way in terms of scheduling. And eventually the last time that happened was six years ago. And I was pregnant with my second child. Uh, I, I was newly pregnant. I didn't even know I was pregnant yet. And I auditioned for a show, a new show, a new play, a musical. And, um, and I, 
and I got the part and I then found out I was pregnant and then I found out that when calls the heart was going to was picked up for its second season. So I had done two episodes in season one of when calls the heart and then Arctic air was canceled. I got pregnant and then I found out that when calls the heart was picked up again and it was going to film almost at the same time as the play and the opening night of the play was my due date from the baby. And so I just went, I had to step out of the play. I just, I phoned them up and they offered me the part. And I said, I, I just can't, this is not going to work for any part of my life right now. And it was at that point that I just went, <laughs> if it's meant to be, it'll happen. But it, it just doesn't seem like it's working for me. I've, you know, there are many actors who are able to kind of balance that and hop between the two mediums fluidly and I've just never been able to I've never I've never found a way to do that so I kind of have just given I've, I've given over to that and that accepted that my place is in film and tv and I and ultimately I love film and tv I, I really love it I love being on set I love that um, especially working on a series that there's that sense of community and camaraderie that you have of like working with the same people for years now, I, I love that. I, I, I really like that, that environment. And, um, so I'm, I'm happy with where I am. I feel like now, yeah. finally, <laughs> I'm very happy that we get to see you on our, our screens, uh, as well. Although now that I know that theater is such a big thing for you, like I kind of want to manifest the timing working <laughs> so I can see you on stage. But I know from talking to people like Gabrielle Rose and Brian Markinson and Jennifer Collins. Yeah, they've done a much yeah. better job than I have. Well, but of, then they of, have to like block out big chunks of their year yes. right where they're like this is my theater time and then this yeah. is you know and that and that you which know, i think that was through. part of it that was that was kind of tricky for me is um now with my kids i kind of went okay so i'm working this much time in the year in film and tv so that time that i'm not working is my time that's blocked off for my kids like i really want to be available and at home for them and so that's that's where my balance has been of more this balance of extremes of I work really hard for half the year, but then I focus on being at home and I, I don't really want to, I not, I don't want to take away from that. Yeah. Oh, solidarity sister. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, pff, I, I know, I really know. Um, even though I feel like I'm operating in a not what is considered regular times, like we're with pandemic times are a little bit different and yes. expectations and stuff, but oh no, I know. I want to talk about some of the women who live in your filmography who have maybe become imaginary friends to you over the years and they might be with you now. I don't know what I'm trying to create with that. It's just going on and on about that. I'm starting to sound uh, really crazy. <laughs> but you know what? I also, there is something so magical about the way that you describe your childhood, you know, and especially like my grandparents had that, had that farm as well, where instead of going to camp, I would go to my grandparents' farm in Eastern Ontario. They had the big barn. That was also, it was my, they had a piano in it and like bats and I read in there and I put on yeah. little plays with my sister. And, you know, it's, I, it's so magical, but then you've also, I mean, what you described about the, your mother making costumes in the, in the house and in the little house, in the little shed. And I don't know, like, I feel like maybe, maybe that's, 
there's some kind of Hallmark Channel project that could come <laughs> out of your childhood story. But anyway, I want to talk about some of the specific women uh, who, who live in your filmography, um, who are important to me as an audience member, and I don't know how you feel about them. I'm assuming you care about them too. I want to start with Juliana from Intelligence, who incidentally, April Tellick brought up as uh, she had said that I had, the question was, um, oh, it's kind of incidental how favorite things works. But I'm like, you know, what is a Vancouver series past or present, you know, on which like that you would have loved to play a role? And she was she was like, I wish that I could have played Pascal Hutton's role, you know, on Intelligence. Um, oh. But obviously she was just so, so, so amazing. Um, so, you know, I mean, that that is a big project. This is a ensemble cast of actors at the top of their their games, right? You got Ian Tracy, you got Jacques Cassini, you got Camille Sullivan. How did this role push you or challenge you or change you as an actor? And, and I, I even include that when I say, how did that role, the fact that you received a Gemini Award, which is like a national, you know, that, that is a national honor, right? You know, from the... If, it's been rolled into the CSAs, but you know, the, the Gemini is a big fucking deal, a BFD, <laughs> you know? So, so all of that, how did that experience change you? It was, it was a, it was just a, I mean, I can't even say enough good things about that experience. Uh, I was taking it more at, at face value initially, because initially I didn't know what the character was going to develop into. And, that's a testament to Chris Haddock and the way that he works. Um, I don't know if people have talked about this in the past on your show, but he's there. He is there on set every day. Every day that I was there, he was there from top to bottom. And he was always watching, watching every little thing that you're doing. And so, and then he's also writing the whole series. And I don't know when he slept, but he it was kind of this very um, symbiotic uh, relationship that he has with his work, which is he's watching what you're bringing to the character and allowing that to inform how he writes the character. Mm -hmm. And of course you're taking what he's writing and having that inform how you play the character. So it's all this like back and forth, this give and take. Uh, originally it was, I think when I originally auditioned for it, it just said, Eastern European call girl who I don't even think they said goes undercover. I think they just said Eastern European call girl. And I was just excited because I had always wanted to be on Da Vinci's inquest and mm -hmm. never got, never even got an audition. That was kind of going when I first came to Vancouver and was first kind of breaking onto the scene. So never even got an audition on that show. And my parents Kept on, <laughs> my parents kept on phoning me like anytime I talked to them and they'd be like, why aren't you on Da Vinci's Inquest? They love Da Vinci's Inquest. And so they were, why aren't you on Da Vinci's Inquest? Like, can you get an audition <laughs> for Da Vinci's Inquest? I'm like, if it were only that easy, guys, please, I would do it. But no, I'm, I'm just not getting called for that. At the time that I booked Intelligence, I think it was only for one episode. I was only booked for one episode. And so I did it. And then... Chris had other, Chris, I think, always knew he had more plans for my role. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And uh, and then I, I think they called saying we wanted, they wanted to have me for another episode. And 
it just, the, the role started just growing and growing and growing. And I was really excited about it, mostly for the point, I felt like she was a real character rather than necessarily a, a fairly close variation of myself. I felt like this felt like a character role. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just really exciting for me. I was really excited to have an accent and I was really excited to create I felt like it was one of the first times I had a character that needed a fully developed backstory in my mind. We weren't going to probably see her backstory, but I needed to have it. So it just felt like it felt really exciting creatively for me to, to work on it. And it, and the character just started getting more and more dynamic and more and more complicated. The deeper she got involved in this whole situation and, um, so I just, I mean, I just, I just, and then she's pushed to this like kind of vibrating neurotic state. And I, I was just so excited. I was so excited about You're everything. like, she's a mess. She's a hot mess. And, and I, I love her. And I, I love, love her. her. And it was so exciting. It was so exciting. I just, I loved everything about it. And um, I loved working on it. I loved working with Clea Scott and, uh, Eugene Lipinski, who were two of the people. Eugene was my handler, and then Clea was often doing the interviews with me. Yeah. And uh, I just loved it, and I felt really playful in that character. Um, I just, I, I, I just loved, I loved seeing how it developed. And it was one of those ones where you just get the next script, and you're so excited to see what's going to happen. Yeah. And then, I mean, then it was done, and I can't remember the order of things when the show, because the show was canceled after that season. Um, and I can't and, and Nobody can see. I'm rolling my eyes. Like I, just, I know. I mean, we all were rolling our eyes. It was the best thing that was on TV at that yeah. time. And if you want to watch it and ex- experience it anew, it's on Netflix now. So it's on Netflix. Covering and, it and being like, what the hell? What, why are we only having two seasons of it? Because it was so good. It was so good. And it ended with such a cliffhanger. Ian Tracy's character gets shot. And he's, it was just, there was so much, so much excitement and so much intrigue and so much more that could have been explored Mm. with that series. So that happened. And then I found out that I was nominated for this award and that was just really exciting. I I mean, I've always, for me, the real excitement, and I think I've learned this more and more as my career has progressed. I mean, being nominated for things and winning awards is, is great, but it always feels more like And I think it should be just the cherry on top of the work, which is the real gift. And I had had such an amazing experience just working on the show that I just thought, oh, this will be like a fun little, fun little trip, like just to go and, uh, and be a part of that. And I didn't really, I mean, when I think about how naive I was, I just didn't really take it that seriously. I didn't buy an outfit for it. I, the night before we were supposed to fly out, we were my husband and I were going to fly out to go to the awards, and in Toronto, uh, right? In Toronto, yeah. yeah. And uh, our flight was at I don't know, like five in the morning, and we were going to fly there, arrive in Toronto, and then I think the awards were either that night or the next night. Like it was very close, and so <laughs> it's the night before we're flying it. I don't know. It was eleven o'clock at night, and I said, you know, I should. I had an idea in my head of some stuff that I had in my closet that I thought might work. And I said, oh, you know, maybe I should try on this outfit and see if it actually works. So I tried on the outfit and I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, I'm not sure this works. And I came out and I showed my husband. He's like, oh, no, honey, 
no, you look like an elf. And I was like, oh, I no. wish I'd worn that. <laughs> I could tell it was not an elf in a good way. It was, it was in a bad way. And so I was frantic. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 11 o'clock at night. What am I going to do? I got to get this out. I got to get something together. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I'm digging, digging, digging. And then I pull out my, my grade 12 prom dress, which was, un, which was an understated dress for a grade 12 prom dress, but I did pull it out and I put it on and I was like, oh, it actually works. And then I thought, oh, this is silly. I can't wear my grade 12 prom dress. And I went, you know what? What about if I turn it around? <laughs> so I, what about if I turn it around backwards and I wear the dress backwards and I decided to cut the, it had these straps. I cut the straps and then re-sewed them so that the, these kind of little spaghetti straps kind of came into a V and held the dress kind of at a point right above my cleavage. And and I went, yeah, this is working. This is good. This is what I'm going to wear. And that's what I wore. That's what I wore. I wore that dress. I wore my grade 12 prom dress backwards to the Geminis. And then we were sitting wow. there. We were sitting there. And the, I think my award was the, one of the first awards up for the night. And I wasn't even really paying attention. And I, I think I was chatting to the people at my table. And then they were like, it was Andrea Martin. She was like, and the winner is Pascal Hutton. And I was so, I was just so frazzled and flabbergasted. I didn't even know really what had happened, but it was so, it was really fun. It was, it was such a fun thing. And, and um, I, it was just, again, it felt like such a great cherry on top of such an amazing experience. Are there photos of, of you at the Gemini's wearing the strat? Like I would love to see this photo. Yeah. Yeah. It. Oh um, yeah. It, it's there. And honestly, if you see it, you go, you go, oh, that's a nice dress. Like you, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like I sewed it the night before. <laughs> I, I mean, I also, I think we're we're about the same age. Like I, I wore my 1998 prom dress like more than 12 or 14 years later to one of the UBCP. There you go. Awards, you know. Yeah. We got good style in the late 90s when we went to good prom style. <laughs> Um, okay, so the next the next woman I want to talk to uh, talk about not talk to we're not doing like or we could um, <laughs> is FBI Special Agent Abigail Abby Corrigan from Sanctuary. Yeah. Um, obviously, there are a lot of fans of this show. I got a lot of questions for you about this show. Um, one of the one of the most amazing things about Sanctuary, uh, which was from the sci fi genre, was the the talent of the ensemble um mm -hmm. and uh and yet also you had you know kind of at the on top of it you had amanda you know kind of setting the tone for everybody but you know working as part of that ensemble you know um what what was that experience like and how did you how did you flourish and grow i said that like rosemary flourish and grow you know <laughs> during your time uh you know as part of sanctuary I loved working on Sanctuary because I got introduced to Martin Wood and Robin Dunn and Amanda Tapping, who uh, I just, A, just love as human beings. I love the way they work. Um, it, they just set such a fun tone on the set. Uh, when they hired me, I was, again, newly pregnant with my first son and hadn't even really started telling people yet, but 
because when I auditioned for it, it was originally listed as a guest star. And so I thought, oh, this is like, if I get it, I can squeeze in this one guest star before I'm really showing that I'm pregnant. And then I can, then I'm going to be kind of sent to pasture because nobody's going to hire me while I'm pregnant. And then they came back. Sorry, but I just, that, that makes me recoil. I know, but you know, as an actor, I just, and at that time, particularly, I just thought that that was, that was a foregone conclusion. I was just Mm -hmm. like, I'll just, I'm going to have like seven months off before I have this baby. But they came and they said, we want to, uh, we want Pascal for this role and it's going to recur throughout the whole season. And it was at that point I said, oh, well, they should know that I'm going to be not, I'm going to be changing throughout the whole season. And they were just completely, I mean, talk about integrity Amanda tapping she was just like yeah so we'll just work around it like it's fine it's not a big deal she's like and then the the response was that and then the response also was well we'll hide it until we can't hide it anymore and then we'll write it into the show I just thought what an amazing gift to give a pregnant actress like just and it was it was really a non-issue norm frankly it really should and you know I think it is getting to be more and more the norm that people just are learning to accommodate and work around um but at that time it did feel kind of new that's Mm -hmm. 10 11 years ago so it felt like that attitude about pregnancy and working was still kind of new and I was so supported I was just so supported through that and they were just unfazed by the challenge of it. And, uh, you know, by the end there, I was pretty pregnant. Like my last episode I did where we were still trying to hide it. (laughs) We, me and Robin, we were in this set that they had to create where there, it was kind of almost like a lab, I think. And I came in and all the tables were so high, like the tables, the tables came up so high and I and I I'm sure that was because they thought oh let's put high tables because that's going to hide Pascal's belly uh, which is great which yeah, is great. great it was really smart and so um yeah so that was great and and so that was coupled with the experience as well of just feeling so supported in you know kind of a vulnerable position as an actress that you that does feel vulnerable but I just felt so supported by the production and especially by the main people kind of setting the tone of the whole show. And, uh, and then when they came back for the second season, I had a brand new baby. And again, they were just so, so accommodating and supportive about that whole situation. And I know this isn't really probably what people want to know. They're probably more interested in what Sanctuary was like, but for me, that is just so integrated into my memory and Mm. my experience of what working on that show was, is just feeling so supported when I was in kind of a vulnerable position. And, uh, It was your sanctuary. It was my sanctuary. It was, it it really was was my sanctuary. Yeah. And then, and then the exciting thing was it was the first time, let me think before I make that statement, it was the first time that I was asked to sing. Now I had tons of singing training, years and years of singing training, but there are very few opportunities to sing once you're in film and television world. And so they decided they were going to do a musical episode. And did they I was know on, though? Did they know? No. Before, so before how it started was yeah. we were filming a different episode and 
the writer's room was upstairs in like the big warehouse where they filmed because so much of it was green screen. It was all done in studio, almost all done in studio. And so Robin was always running up to the writer's room because he was really, really good friends with Damien Kindler, who was the, the head writer on the show. And so he was always running up to the writer's room in between takes and he ran up and he came down and he goes, oh my gosh, Pascal, you're not going to believe it. They're breaking a story for a musical episode. Um, they don't know what it's going to be about and they don't know. And I said, oh my God, Robin, you have to run back up there. I need to be in, the, I'm a singer. I need to be in this episode. And he said, I'm going, I'm going right now. And he ran upstairs and he told them and he was up there for a little while. He came down. He's like, it's happening. It's happening. The episode's going to revolve around you. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, what did I just sign myself up for? Like, <laughs> how, can, I got to put my money where my mouth is now. And so then they came out with the script and I just thought it was so exciting and so brilliant. I was so excited about that part and that episode in particular. And uh, we, they sent me all the music and I was, had this baby. So I would put him down for a nap and I would run out to our garage because our garage was detached. And I would, cause I didn't want to wake the baby. Oh. I would run out to the garage and I would like practice these songs for 20 minutes while the baby slept or 30 minutes, however long he's sleeping, not long. And then I would run back into the house and tend to the baby. And then when he would fall asleep again, I would run out to the garage and I, cause there was quite a few songs to learn and they were complicated cause it wasn't, they weren't just songs. Some of it was sung dialogue too, which is Recitative? Recitative. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was almost like an opera. It was yeah. almost like an opera. And so, um, uh, yeah. And then we, then we went into the recording studio and recorded it. It was just so much fun. The whole thing was so much fun. I loved every second of it. And, uh, and it is a beloved fugue is a beloved, beloved. It is. Episode. It is. Uh, people love that episode. And, um, that just makes me so happy because we all enjoyed ourselves making it so much. Yeah. And I, and it's still an awesome sci-fi episode as well. You know, like yeah, it's, it's not yeah, just like exactly. we have a musical and then we're slapping on a sci-fi story. Like really cool shit happens in that episode too. Um, I got a question from uh, a fan in the UK, Sandra yeah. Rankin, uh, who wanted to know um, what was your most memorable or funny memories working on Sanctuary? Let's go for comedy. We talked about a very memorable with Fugue. Let's hear some comedy. So Martin and Robin are always pranksters. Like oh, I'm so shocked. They are they're <laughs> infamous for their pranks, always. Um so but this was my introduction to them. So on the first my first episode, I'm supposed to come in and uh, a knock on a door, Robin answers the door. I think it's my very first scene in the whole series. And I present him with this file folder that's supposed to have all these important documents in it. And they, they, oh, no. what they, did they, do? they filled the file folder with all of Robin's old headshots <laughs> that they, they'd found online. They printed them all off and it was all like these really cheesy old headshots of Robin's. And so I was thought, oh gosh, I don't even know Robin very well and I didn't know if he was going to have a good sense of humor about this or not I didn't feel like I was on the in yet to be making inside jokes but here I and then I hand him the folder and he opens it and he just burst out laughing and, and <laughs> it was just very funny it was very funny and then there was another day where me and Robin at this point our characters 
have kind of coupled up and we were sitting on a couch uh, and the phone rings and he's talking and he's supposed to be having this business conversation and Martin Wood actually phoned him. It was not a pretend phone call. They were live cell phones that they were using. And Martin Wood was just saying nonsense, silliness into, into Robin's ear and Robin's trying to keep this stoic straight face and have this businessy conversation. And, and (laughs) that was just, that was just par for the course with those two. They were always pulling pranks like that. It was fun. So you went from, from sanctuary to Arctic air. I mean, pretty much the timing would be. Yeah. They, they almost over, they, they did overlap. Actually they did overlap. Uh, I finished sanctuary and, and was just starting Arctic air at the same time. And um, yeah, I, I, Arctic air came along and uh, introduced me to Gary Harvey, who has become one of my nearest and dearest friends. And I love him dearly. And on top of that, I just, he still stands as one of, I think the, the person that I have met in this industry who conducts himself with the highest, highest level of integrity, mm-hmm. uh, which um, is not always the case when, when a, somebody's in the, at the head of a TV series. Yeah. And he really did. He, every, everybody was seen and heard and respected on that set. And that was contagious. Then everybody, you, you know, people just conducted themselves in a very different way. Yeah. And uh, Arctic Air came along and it was, it was a very magical experience with this all Canadian cast. Yeah. Um, let's say, let's there, do some shout outs. We have Adam Beach. Kevin McNulty, uh, Amelia Ullerup, uh, Steve Lobo, um, Carmen Moore, Carmen Moore, you know, yeah. and uh, I mean, the list does go on and on and on. I mean, it was, it, it was really phenomenal. does. Um, it really does. I would imagine, though, that Arctic Air was a big deal, like for you in particular, because you were like considered like one of the leads of the show, right? Like I saw you on billboards and, yeah, and I saw you, know, you on funny. the bus. <laughs> the funny thing was when I booked Arctic Air, I was excited. I didn't know that CBC was going to really throw all their publicity promotion power behind it to right, really. They didn't pro- do that for intelligence. Or pro- for- no, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't. And so a lot of CBC shows kind of were percolating under the radar. And at that time, uh, Kirsten Stewart was president of CBC and she really understood publicity and promotion and how you really need to put money and resources behind that. If your shows are going to be successful, Uh, a good show is only good. If people are like, what good is a good show if nobody's watching it? And she really understood that. And so when I first got onto Arctic Air, I didn't know that that was going to happen. So I thought I was just making this little CBC show. We were having a good time. And then as we started nearing the end of filming season one is when the publicity and promotion started happening. And I started getting a sense of, oh, this is this is big. Like CBC's really, I was everywhere. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know that all the billboards, all the ads, all the buses, I just didn't know that was going to happen. So 
so I feel, felt a little bit caught off guard, but in a pleasant way by that experience. Uh, and then, and then the show really took off. It was, it, lots of people were tuning in, lots of people were watching it. And I think it's because they were putting so much behind it to make sure people knew about it. I mean, it was back in the, it wasn't that long ago, but it was back in the day where, um, CBC would have events here uh, in at CBC Vancouver for local journalists, and then also you know for um, the fans to interact as well. Like there haven't yeah. been those kind of events in in recent years, and uh, they would even bring people. Like they they brought um, Republican Doyle cast out. They brought the Murdoch guys. They brought them all out. You know they so would that, do. We would yeah. do it during that time. Was kind of in the heyday, like when. Republic of Doyle, Arctic Air, Murdoch Mysteries, um, Dragon's Den. Like That's right. They would, they would take us and travel us around the, across Canada. We would, we would stop in, we would obviously do Toronto, but then we, we would do Winnipeg, we would do Calgary, we would do Vancouver and do like a whole event where we were, we were talking about the shows and stuff. And it was really, it was a neat experience to be a part of because you felt like you were part of a bigger a bigger, uh, a bigger, well, you were a piece of the bigger network. And because I was getting to know all the people from the other shows, it felt kind of like a a reunion or something, everybody getting together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I missed that. And I hope it's something as CBC moves forward that they they consider bringing back Mm -hmm. after the pandemic, um, because it really connected I don't know. It's a good way to connect the viewers here to this, you know, it's supposed to be the national network. It's supposed to be, you know, the mother core, right? It's supposed uh-huh. to represent all Canadians. Um, yeah. I'm not going to go on and on about how I've been like raging about CBC since the Romeo section was canceled. There has not <laughs> been a dramatic series, you know, for the CBC in British Columbia since Romeo section. And that yeah. just goes my mind. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about like, I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a fan of Pascal Hutton's. I'm a, I'm a fan of Gary Harvey's. I love him. I love his art. I'm a fan of Arctic Air. You know, I yeah. really like that show was just so exciting. Uh, I learned a lot watching that show. I learned a lot about Canada's North and I learned a lot about bush pilots and just from watching the show. And then it made me go and like be like, are there documentaries about this kind of thing? Like, what were some things that you learned about, you know, bush pilots and about, you know, the, the people and the culture of Canada's North from doing Arctic air? I learned, I learned everything. I mean, I, I didn't learn everything, but everything I know I learned through that show. Uh, I did not know anything about the Yukon and um, the culture and the resources and the lifestyle up there. And it was so special because we were actually going up there once a month and filming rather than just faking it down here in Vancouver. We were actually going up there and experiencing it and and we were connected to the actual community there. And so that was, it was a beautiful experience and it was beautiful to because we would start filming in the summer and then we would end around December or January sometimes. And so we were really experiencing summer, 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 then we were fall and then the dead of winter. And, and so I just, I, I got to experience so many um, unique things to life up there. Mm. And then it, as far as 
the communities, just how much these, these small planes, these bush pilots really connect all these communities because that's often their only lifeline for getting resources, getting food, getting supplies. And so that was really interesting because we, we did film at a bunch of those, we would take a plane, we would take one of those DC threes and, and fly to the community. If we needed to have certain scenes at a specific airport, we would actually go to it. So, but uh, you weren't sitting in the pilot seat, right? Like, no, <laughs> no, I would be, I would be back in the passenger seat for that. But you know, sometimes, cause the other thing is, is there's so, there's so much water up there, so many lakes, like many, many, many thousands of lakes. And so uh, float planes are really big up there also. And so there were a few times where I got to go and I would, I mean, I wasn't piloting the, the plane, but I got to sit in the front seat and have the experience of what that, just the magnitude of the sky when you're mm. sitting in the cockpit. And that was really neat. The other thing I learned so much about was flying and airplanes. Hmm. We They sent us to the um, airplane museum out in Langley and where they actually have a DC-3. And then they took us through uh, kind of the, the bare bones of flying it but we were always getting crash courses and we had somebody on set with us always who was a pilot who was teaching us and talking us through do they call them crash courses by the way they always <laughs> to be like let's go on a crash course because we learn about this Maybe little on airplane our because we were always nearly crashing on that show we were like <laughs> near crashes all the time <laughs> <laughs> oh man so did it change the way though that you think about flying you know I mean you flew even recently like do you think you do you feel like oh I feel very secure when I'm on this plane or you're like we're almost always moments away from death in these flying death traps uh no I I, I feel pretty safe on an airplane mostly because I, I know that the actual pilots are much more adept and skillful than I was <laughs> Um, I still rage about Arctic Air's cancellation. I really think that it deserved better. Honestly, I, I, I do too. What What really is sad for me is that I felt like I felt like season three was our best season, and I felt the show had really kind of found its stride, which yeah. is, I think, often the case. I think a lot of shows, season one and two, are often you're feeling things out, and then season three is where often shows kind of gel. Yeah. And I felt like that in season three. And so for the show to be canceled felt really, it just felt really sad. It yeah. felt really devastating. I felt like our final two episodes of the series were our best two episodes we ever so produced. exciting as yeah, well. Yeah, they were oh so God. exciting. And uh, I just felt like there was more story to tell. And I would have liked to have done that. And so did you the fact mourn? that we didn't. Did Pardon? You did you mourn? Well, it was kind of weird. I mean, I was sad. I was sad, but Gary called me. It was not. It was not officially announced that it was the show was canceled yeah. yet. But Gary called me, and I knew in his voice. I could hear in his voice right away that it was not good. And he said it, the show's canceled, Pascal. And I, we kind of talked about that. And I hung up the phone. And I was upset. And then literally the next day. Um, Brad Cravoy, who is the executive producer of When Calls the Heart, he phoned me and I had done my two guest spots, like my two episodes of season one in When Calls the Heart. And so he phoned me and he said, literally the next day, and he said, 
Uh, Pascal, this is Brad Cravoy. We haven't met, but I'm the executive producer on When Calls the Heart, and I'm phoning to see what your availability is like because we want to bring you on as one of our regulars on When Calls the Heart. I was like, well, I guess your your timing couldn't be better because my show was canceled yesterday. (laughs) And so I felt like I kind of jumped right into that. And, you know, that never gives you a lot of time to feel that sad because I was on to the next project. I was also newly pregnant with my second child. So I was kind of, I was not kind of, I was really excited about that as well. So I felt like I had two really exciting diversions to focus on. That's, that's good. That's, I'm glad that you had, I mean, I don't think that, that I've spoken enough with actors about what happens when a show that they're on is canceled and like what that can do, you know, to them as as an artist and how you move on. Yeah. So here, I will tell you once, one story. I, when I, early on in my career, I booked a pilot down in LA. I was in LA for pilot season and I ended up booking a show. It was a half hour comedy. I was, and it was for network TV. I was so, so, so excited about this show. Friends had been canceled or not canceled, but friends was done. And this was a couple of years and networks were trying to find the next friends. And this was, this was a Fox TV series and it was their attempt at finding a friends type show. So it was an ensemble. There were six people, two women, four men. And I was just so excited about it. We filmed the pilot and then I came back to Canada and then uh, I got a call from the two creators of the show uh, right before the May upfronts where the networks all announce what shows are being picked up, what pilots are being picked up. And uh, so they phoned me like about a week before the upfronts and they're like, oh, you know, we've, we've handed our, our cut of the show in. We're really happy with the end product. No small part because of you. We think you're great. Like you're such a uh, important part of the ensemble. Thank you for your work. We're really excited. Fingers crossed. We think it's getting picked up. All signs are pointing to it's getting picked up. Cut to like a couple days later, I get a call from my agent and manager and they say, so the show's been picked up, but you have not been picked up. Oh, uh, they didn't pick up your contract. They're recasting your role. And I was, that was one of my most devastated moments in my whole career. I, I just sobbed. I was just crying and crying and crying uh, for probably like a day. I, I feel like I just cried and I was just so, so devastated. And you know, you start going down that rabbit hole of just if I got fired, no one's ever going to hire me. I'll be known as the fired girl and blah, blah, blah. Oh, like, it's just, you just go down a whole road. And um, I was definitely going down that path. And I just had this moment where I suddenly went, this is not the moment that is defining my career. This is not it. Like, I just know this is not the moment. Mm. Um, and I think now as I've come further along in my career. I don't know if any one moment defines your career. It's kind of the cumulative experience, but I knew that that was not going to be the moment. And I just kind of went, okay, pick yourself up, get back at it, go to it. And then here's the irony in it all. A month later, they were, I was auditioning for things and I auditioned for another show, a pilot that had been picked up. And one of the lead females, they, 
didn't want to pick up her contract. They had let her go. They had picked up the show, but let her go. And I was recast in that role. And it just, what it did for me is it just went, this is just a business. It's nothing personal. Like people, you know, they let people go. They fill you in. This, this show didn't want me, but this show does want me. It, it's just a machine. It's just, it's a business. It's a machine. Oh, but isn't that hard when you're at, you care and you're an actor yeah. and this is your calling and yeah, yeah, yeah it, is. it still was. stinks. It, it stinks. It stinks. But I think you kind of have to find a way to, uh, and this is, this is always what the, this is, I feel like is that the crux of why acting as a profession is difficult. You have to be able to allow yourself to be your most vulnerable self and yet not take things personally. You kind of have to find a way to disassociate your own self-worth from the business of it. And I mean, that's just a weird paradox that takes people a long time to figure out and how to navigate that on, on their own. But that for me was a very good example and a big learning moment for me in terms of my relationship with this business. Mm. Okay. Fans, we have now come to the part of the episode where we are going to talk about when calls the heart. (laughs) Just want to let the hearties know I've not forgotten you. We are here now. Um, So you arrived at the end of season one as as Jack's ex-fiance. You were Mm -hmm. there to win back his heart. and then you, as you told us the story, you were brought back for season two. And you mean, you went from the journey to being the rival, to being the best friend and to being, you know, like a second mother for little Jack. But when you arrived on When Calls the Heart, was there anything in the people you were meeting or the words that you were saying or the stories that you were seeing play out that like gave you any insight into the kind of juggernaut, wildly popular success i don't want to say monster but it's so nice i don't want to say monster but like it's it's a juggernaut you know it's a big show it's a big show for the network and perhaps more importantly it's a really big show in a lot of people's lives um did you know like if so like no no you didn't know when i had no idea i had no idea and i don't think i realized until about season three In season three, we did our very first um, Hardy's family, family reunion. I was and, there. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so that that was a big eye opener for me of going, oh wow, like people really, really are connected to this show, yeah. and we're a part of that. We're a part of this special experience. And so that was probably that was the moment when I realized this was something special and unique. Yeah. Um, how does the fact that it is so beloved impact the work that you do on the show? I think everybody comes from a place of wanting to be really, um, re- really respectful of, of our fans. The fans have really taken this show and championed it. And I don't know if I've ever been on a show where I felt it more strongly of this show would not be where it is without this fan base, the fan base kind of almost in a grassroots kind of style really built up 
not just the show, but the community that surrounds the show mm. uh, with our hearties, with the fans. And, and so I think our storytelling always wants to be really respectful of, of their investment in the show and, and tell stories and tell stories that, uh, what's the right word for this or what's the right phrase for this? It's, um, that people are truly invested in these characters and people are truly invested in these storylines. And we never want to trivialize that. We never want to trivialize the storyline um, that people are so invested in. That's what I would say is that we really want to honor the storylines that people care about. Yeah. I mean, I remember at that Hardy's family reunion that I attended um, which was out where you film. Uh, yeah, the, in that the, rainy tent. It was a rainy day. <laughs> and I mean, I was kind of like near a heater. Um, the rain was pounding through. It was coming through a little bit through the tent on yes. the floor. But no, like everybody around me, because um, I was there as media and I was you know, watching everybody. They did not care that it was raining. They were in their happiest place on earth. And they yeah. were really, they were from all over. I mean, mainly from all over the States, but all over. I heard so many different accents from all the different regions. It was, uh, it was truly, truly amazing. I will also say, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this. Um, I was, I was hanging out with the execs that day. And I think that there were a bunch of Hallmark execs executives um who who had come up and it was like one of the first times that they had come up and they were seeing everybody together and um they like you and and kavan am i saying it correctly i don't Cavan. spell it Cavan. kavan kavan <laughs> were like i don't know doing that thing you do right where you're kind of like you know like making each other laugh and making fun of each other and th the execs like they were like that is that right there that is very special that is special. Um, and I, and I know that a lot has come from, you know, that, you know, a, a lot of what people like on the show, they love the, the, the relationships, you know, and the love and the families that are, that are created. Um, did you know, like, how hard do you and I'm going to say it wrong again. Kevin. My instinct yep. is Kevin. I think it's Gavin, but with a K. Oh, I'm a 90s teen. So yeah, Gavin. Kevin. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm so sorry, Kevin. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. You make me laugh all the time. Um, but you know, how hard did you have to work for that chemistry? Or is this one of these cases? I mean, and frankly, you've had chemistry with everybody I've seen you paired with on screen, but this one is like very special. It, feels it is. Like. I mean, I absolutely. I mean, Kevin's one of my best friends. So, uh, we didn't have to work at it at all. Like mm. not at all. The two of us, it just, which is, I feel really <laughs> serendipitous because they did not, I was on the show already. What I didn't know was, so my character as, and all the fans of the show know that my character was introduced as obviously the ex fiance of Jack. And at the end of season one, when that played out, my character was, widely hated by the Hardys in, in an appropriate way. They of were just course. like, don't, don't break up our favorite couple. And so the, they did, they really wanted to keep my character around because they felt like my character was really fun uh, and needed in the town, but they did not want my character to be a hated character. Mm. And so they wanted to, 
kind of move my character away from Jack Thornton and Elizabeth and find a, find her own love interest. I didn't know that. Nobody told me that. So they were auditioning for this role of this, this mysterious man who was going to ride into town on a motorcycle. What an arrival. I mean, come on. What an arrival. Great arrival. <laughs> Great arrival. Definitely <laughs> caught Rosemary's eye. And, <laughs> and that that was going to be a potential love interest. I didn't know that at the time. And so Kevin and I just got on really well. We just clicked and on camera and off, like off camera, the two of us were always making each other laugh and, and uh, joking around. And then on camera was always very playful. Uh, they wrote for our characters very well mm-hmm. um, as that introduction kind of like flirty banter. And uh, I think everybody just saw what was going on between the two of us and went, oh, this, this is gangbusters, which is, I just think so unique because we didn't ever do a chemistry test, which is usually what networks try and do to make sure that a pairing is going to work. They do numerous chemistry tests and they didn't, they just brought Kevin on. We're like, fingers crossed this works. (laughs) And it's, and it, and it did. It's one of like the best relationships I've ever had uh, on screen, but off screen as well. Yeah. A true collaborator. Um, Let's talk about Rosemary a bit. Um, What do you, what do you like about her? Like, what are some of the joys of, of playing her and how, and how much does she, like how much of Pascal are we seeing in Rosemary? (laughs) I think different people have different perspectives of how much is like Pascal and how much isn't. (laughs) I basically love everything about Rosemary. I really do. I think I love playing a character that is so, um, theatrical, so dramatic, so um, spontaneous and willing to speak her truth and tell her opinion, whether it's wanted or not. Um, she's so confident and she's so, uh, just, uh, boisterous. So I, all those qualities are so fun and exciting and, uh, quirky. I always find that there's, there's quirks written in and then there's also ways to just anytime I can find a moment where Rosemary just kind of changes on a dime or is saying one thing, but saying it in a very unconventional way. Mm. I just, I love those moments. I love finding those moments. I love finding where she says something that sounds ridiculous, but says it um, with complete sincerity and earnestness. I always think those are funny moments. They make me laugh. And so I, everything, everything about Rosemary, I just love. I've also loved the fact that now after eight seasons, we're still finding ways for the character to grow and mature and evolve, which mm. is necessary it, when you're eight seasons in, like it would be incredibly boring if everyone like the writers and producers just wanted me to stay the same way I was when I was introduced in season one. Yeah. So it's been great to evolve, but also hold on to that core of Rosemary, which is, is a bit of a spitfire and, um, unpredictable. Yeah. Um, and as far as how much it's like me, I don't know. I definitely have my Rosemary moments. I like to think that in my own life, I'm a bit more tactful than Rosemary is known for, but for certain people who are close to me would 
argue that I'm not as tactful as I could be. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. She cares. She always means well. She cares. She cares. And but and then I think what we're seeing this season on When Calls the Heart, she cares, but it she's she cares about her friends and loved ones, but it's not gonna stop her from speaking the truth and speaking her opinion, which I mean to me that is an act of love. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. She is going through something which I find I find so exciting to watch, especially about a woman in, you know, in the 1910s. Right. And, you know, the way that Viv and I talked about when calls the heart is that it's it's like a it's like an alternate timeline of reality where, you know, there's there's all the things that we might a lot of the things we might associate with that time, like the war, you know, and <laughs> and, and yes. you know, a lot of the social justice issues that were way far back in the time. We don't see it reflected in the show. And that's very nice. Um, but it's so it's but it's really exciting to see Rosemary go having this moment of what do I want to do? What will it take for me to be self-actualized? Which is something that, I mean, frankly, is even hard now for, for women to, you know, to, to have. Like, what do you, what do you, I mean, granted, I'm sure you know where she's going and all these things, but, you know, where, where, where do you want Rosemary to go? You know, like, when do you think, and no spoilers, because I want to watch this all play out, you know, but, <laughs> but like, what do you think it'll take to make her feel satisfied? And now she's trying I, to think how to answer it without giving any spoilers. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's got two things going on, which is she's obviously dealing with uh, a big defining part of her life that she thought a role that she thought was going to define a big portion of her life is now not happening, which is motherhood in the capacity that she always envisioned it. And so I think that that is you know, causing a bit of, uh, she's a bit lost because of that. Cause that was the role that she thought was going to going to kind of give her life meaning and, and give her purpose and focus. And that's not happening. And I think she's coming to realize, which I always knew was going to be the case. I, a woman who was so ambitious and a performer, like an actor and a singer and, a star in her own right, I just never believed that she was going to be happy long-term working in a dress shop. I just, she just wasn't. Yeah. And so I think we've seen Rosemary kind of bounce around from to a diff few different places because they were distractions from finding the bigger purpose in her life. And so I think she ultimately needs to find something that is creative that's a creative outlet for her but also has a bigger purpose in terms of the world and the community yeah. other than just designing beautiful dresses for women which she enjoyed but I think she's now searching for a bigger purpose than that and it's I so think it's scary to do what she's doing too you know like yeah, she's walking you know around with a notebook trying to write down her, her what she know. wants from her life that's so like sad. that's hard to do yeah. And I think what I think is interesting is that we're seeing that struggle. It would have been much easier if it had just come to her in a, in an epiphany and, and went, Oh, this is, I know what I meant to do in the, in the world. I'm going to leave the dress shop because I'm doing this. Yeah. And instead it's come in kind of like this messy kind of 
I don't think I want to be at the dress shop anymore, but I don't know where I'm going. And she's living in that really uncomfortable unknown spot, which is, I think, very real. I think a lot of people experience that of going, this does not feel right anymore, but I don't yet have a clear path of what I want to move towards. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we're, that's what we're seeing. And she is going to find her way. I can promise the fans that she is going to find her way. Of course, Rosemary's going to find her way. We all know she's going to. Of course. But, um, but I think it's interesting for her to kind of exist in this uncomfortable place for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, I love, I mean, we talk about how representation is so important. I think even representation of, of, of things like uncertainty, you know, mm-hmm. of things like that, that journey. I mean, they're important to see on screen. For yes. Sure, you know, um, yes. let's talk about Erin as a number one. Uh, mm-hmm. And the kind of the quality, like what quality is she? I mean, you share a lot of scenes with her and I can tell from your social media that you are, you are friends. Um, dear friends. She's dear one of friends. my best friends. Yeah. One of my best friends. Her and I are in contact every day, all day. Um, she's, uh, she's, a, she's a really amazing, inspiring human being. She, as far as her role as number one and producer on the show, I would say this unabashedly. There is not a, another single human who cares more about the show than Erin. Mm. She cares deeply about every aspect of this show no one is more invested in this in this show than Erin and because she cares so much um attention to detail is really important and she's very aware she creates a very safe sounding board where people can talk to her and she will listen to your thoughts and ideas and concerns and and try and do something about them. And uh, she really cares about every single character on the show and wants what's best for them and wants wants them to have a, a, a spot, like a really fulfilled, uh, developed spot on the show. And, um, and then on top of that, she's just really fun gal to hang out with. Like she's fun to act with. She's a phenomenal actress, but she's also so playful and yeah. lovely as a human being. And I think not everybody can see that because, you know, Elizabeth isn't really known for her her jokes and comedy. And Erin is quite funny and quite a little jokester herself. So mm. she she makes it a really fun place to be. Is it like camp? I mean... I imagine, yeah, it is. you know, I was there, I mean, I was there on the, up for that Hardy's family reunion day. And, you know, it was, and, and even though like we were walking, we're not in costumes and we're not acting anything out and we're not, it still felt like, wow, like we're in a, we're in a really cool town, you know, like we're, we can pretend, like I did not feel like I was, you know, in the greater Vancouver regional district at that time. Right. You know, so you're there and you're, you're wearing the beautiful costumes and your hair is just, architecturally structured so beautifully and everybody else looks amazing too and they're in their costumes and is it like like is it is it different than um than other shows because you are like in on a set like that is it yeah does it it feel different because you're in those tell me about that because i can imagine you'd be like wow this is like when i was in my barn you know doing the trapeze (laughs) things with 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 good seating bad seating what i what i've always loved about the show and the way that we film it is because it is all the exteriors are connected to the true interiors. Mm. 
for the most part, 95% are, are truly the buildings that you see yeah. inside and outside. And it's a functioning real, like the geography of the town is as it appears on the show. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. It, it makes it so you can film in a different way. You can film scenes where people are coming and going and moving and you really get a sense of that geography. So that's exciting. That's fun for me as an actor to film that way. But then, yeah, I mean, people are definitely in costumes. Like they're not in variations of their regular everyday attire. People are in very definitive costumes, which is, which is neat. It's, it's exciting. It does kind of transport you. And, uh, uh, and then as far as uh, the camp aspect, beyond all those things, we've all been working together for so many years, seven years, very, and six years, depending on when people join the show. But that's, when, you, when we get back together, there's something that just feels so right about being back together, being back on that set. We're on that same set every single day. We don't travel, whereas other shows have usually a home base at a studio and then they do location stuff. We don't, we're there, we're there all the time. And so there's just something very, like a community, like, which is, you know, what's portrayed on the show, on the screen, but also it is how it is behind the scenes as well. Yeah, do you have a favorite, a favorite, structure a favorite building a favorite set to hang out in i really love the row houses which is where my house is and where elizabeth's house is um uh on the show the row houses are actually a row of houses in reality there are only two there's hers and there's mine yeah. <laughs> but i love that's a row <laughs> that's a row it's a little row but it's a row <laughs> um i love filming out there because usually it's just Aaron and Kevin and I. And so um, the three of us have a really good time and the scenes are a bit more intimate because they're, they're smaller. And uh, yeah, I just, I just like that closeness. I like that intimacy when we film out there for sure. And, and those are, they, they are a bit out of town. And so you kind of are a bit removed from the regular hubbub, but I also really like filming on the main street, just the actual main street of the town. I love doing walk and talks along the boardwalk or down the middle of the street. There's always lots of coming and going. And I, I like that kind of dynamic to, uh, to a scene. Yeah. And it's a growing town too, right? Like there's, yeah. you know, talking about building extensions for the hospital or talking about, you know, like it's, it's exciting to, to watch how it's, how it's grown and how it's changed. Um, are you, oh, I do have one, before we play favorite things, um, I do have one fan question from Gryffindor Jenny. I'm Slytherin Sabrina, okay, but I will still read your question, Jenny. Um, <laughs> so it says, Pascal portrays a woman struggling with not getting pregnant so well. I was wondering if she did any research into the infertility community for her storyline, and also is it emotionally difficult to portray this? Um, I, I am so... Um, flattered that that somebody feels like that and anytime anyone's reached out to me about connecting with that storyline it's incredibly moving for me to know that what we are portraying resonates with people who are actually going through that uh 
I, I always wanted it to be really, I've, I have had friends who have gone through infertility and I've talked a lot with them about their experience. And I've always wanted to be very, very respectful of that experience and, and what, what that actually looks like, what that feels like for them going through it. And so doing those scenes and um, I, I don't know if I would describe it as hard doing those scenes. They're emotional, but that's also what I do. Like I'm an actor and doing emotional scenes is part of the job. And uh, I, I've, I mean, to say I've enjoyed it sounds I don't know. It sounds like I'm marginalizing what it is. And that's not what I mean. I just, I enjoy portraying the complexities and I feel like uh, they've always written this storyline with all the complexities and not trying to marginalize what that experience is. And so I've always uh, valued acting that and portraying that storyline because I think it's an important one. And I think it's one that people really connect to. And so I felt I felt uh, honored to be a part of that storyline. And so I've enjoyed being a part of that storyline. Yeah. And it is really important to see on screen for sure, because, you know, considering, you know, things like infertility and pregnancy loss, they are so, I mean, they're, they're, they're experienced by so many people. So mm-hmm. many people go through this. And considering how many people go through it, we don't necessarily get to see the same, you know, the same, it's not proportional to what is seen on, on screen, right? Um, so I, I do, I definitely applaud When Calls the Heart for, for including that in Rosemary's journey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we haven't wrapped it up. I, I know the fans would have loved to have seen it wrapped up in a nice pretty bow and resolved very um, quickly and easily but I'm glad that we didn't because I I always felt like that was going to be that was going to be disrespectful that was that was going to marginalize what the experience is that experience does not wrap up in a nice neat bow quickly it just doesn't and so I'm glad that we didn't choose that route yeah Okay, Pascal Hutton, you ready yes. to play some favorite things? I am, I am. Okay, so favorite things. This is a portion of the show where I ask you your favorite thing of a thing, and then you tell me, but without thinking too much about it. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and I, I use a different voice. <clears throat> favorite karaoke song? Stand By Your Man. Oh, when was the last time you sang that at karaoke? Uh, you know what? It was, it's been a while ago. My, for my 40th birthday, my husband got me a karaoke machine. And so I sang that song for my 40th birthday. <laughs> Aw, I love that. Okay, well, this is kind of related. Favorite song lyric? Oh, favorite song lyric. I'm so terrible with lyrics. This is such a challenge question for me. That's why karaoke is my thing because I can like read the lyrics. Um, 
Oh God, I'm honestly drawing a blank. I'm drawing a blank. We're gonna have to come back to that one. I will answer it, but I'm gonna have to come back to it. Okay, okay, okay. Favorite junk food? Miss Vicky's regular chips. Regular? Just, regular. Just plain. Just plain. Yeah. Just plain. Yeah. I like yeah. the other ones too. I like the other ones too. But I really just like, I really like the plain. Do you dip it in something? To no. Like make it no. exciting? No. Wow. They are exciting enough. Have you tasted that crunch? The crunch is great, but I love the crunch. I mean, Miss Vicky's have such incredible flavors. I know. I, I, and I like I'm them. Not, I don't, I, you're allowed to like what you want to like. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to fight you on it, except that, wow, I'm really surprised. Um, okay. Favorite superhero? Superman, because I really, really, I've, if I had to pick a superhero uh, power, it would be flying. Really? And was this before or after Arctic Air? <laughs> uh, it's been always, it's been always. I've always thought it would be amazing to just be flying and was that one of the games that you played when you were in your barn would you fly from the trapeze onto all the mattresses maybe that is why i loved it i did do a lot of flying around on that trapeze and swinging maybe that's why i loved it so much yeah well i i hope you get that superpower when <laughs> okay favorite show television or film when you were 10 years old oh uh when i was 10 years old Okay, I'm gonna. I, I, it's a bit cringy. It's a lot cringy now. But the Cosby Show was my show. I and hate how he made that cringy. I know ah. he's ruined it. He's ruined it. He ruined it. I can't watch it now. I can't share it with my children. But yeah. it, back in that time, I I really loved that show oh, very same. deeply. I loved that show. Same. I really I did. I love. I loved a different world as well. I loved, I loved a different world. Oh. I watched them back to back. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it. And then it's just they're all ruined now. They really are. And if you don't know why they're ruined, you can Google. But just just spare yourself. It's just a bad story. <laughs> all right. Favorite hot beverage. Oh, matcha latte. Hands down. Oh, do you make it yourself? I do. I do. I make one, uh, at least one for myself every day, but sometimes I'll make a small one in the morning and then a small one in the afternoon. But if I miss my morning one, I might just go straight for a very large one in the afternoon. But yeah, I usually make them. Mine that I make myself are better than I've found anywhere at any store. And I'm always on the mission. I've tasted hundreds of matcha lattes but still the one i make myself is the you're best. renowned around town at cafes they've seen you <laughs> they've seen you coming like oh pascal hutton's coming back to taste the matcha latte <laughs> what milk do you use because like that's I the just, important part yeah so i'm i'm allergic to dairy so i use almond milk and mm. um but I, you know i've tried a lot of the other ones i've tried macadamia nut milk oat milk. I've tried them all. Um, the one I like the best is silk, silk almond milk, which actually Amelia Ellerup is a very close friend of mine. And she balked at my use of the silk almond milk. She's like, oh, it's literally the worst. And I texted her days later and I said, I'm really struggling with this. The fact that you think silk almond milk is the worst almond milk, the worst. 
She's like, well, I can't get it to froth. And I said, okay, you've got to come over. I'm going to get my frother out and I'm going to make you a proper one. You're going to love it. I promise. <laughs> I kind of am on, um, my instinct is what Melia said, uh, because I mean, I, I refrain from dairy products as well. I love dairy. It do, does not like me. So I, I mean, I've tried, you know, in my cappuccinos and lattes, like almond milk, coconut milk, um, oat milk. I haven't had macadamia nut milk. That sounds amazing. Um, and almonds like just has always ranked really low because it's so like gritty. But, okay. And you, th which is your favorite, which is your go-to then? Oh, it, it ends up being coconut milk. Oh, see, I find the coconut flavor, I like it, but it's so strong for me that it just detracts from the matcha flavor, which is what I actually want to taste. Uh, so maybe it's also for you, it's the fact that you can get, one, you can get the almond milk to do what you need it to do. And two, that the matcha and the almond are complementary. Yes, yes. I don't sit and drink just a plain glass of almond milk. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> I've done that. It's not fun. My teeth always feel weird after. Okay. I'm, I hope everybody's enjoyed this almond milk discussion. Um, I'm going to move. So these questions actually were put together by my 10-year-old uh, daughter when she was nine. Um, so these were for her what she considered to be, you know, very revealing questions. So um, these are the last two, and she considers these to be the most important of all. Okay. Pressure. Yeah. All pressure. Okay. <laughs> Favorite cartoon character? <sighs> Favorite cartoon character. And you grew up in the golden age of cartoons, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The era of 1980 Saturday morning cartoons. Uh-huh. The, the cartoon that I really, really loved as a kid was... Um, Gummy bears. Now, lots of people didn't know this, but do you know gummy yes, bears? Yes, of course. Gummy, gummy bears <laughs> bouncing here and there and everywhere. They are the gummy yes. bears. So that was my favorite cartoon, and I really liked the gummy bears. I was less interested in the humans and more into the bears. Ah. So maybe those guys would be my favorites. Oh, fantastic. You know what, listeners, I am going to put a link to the Gummy Bear theme song on YouTube, which I know is there because I've watched it uh, in the footnotes for this episode. Okay, this is the last question. Yeah. The most important question, the most revealing question. <laughs> I really try to build these up. It makes know, it more I'm, exciting. I'm waiting. I'm, waiting. I'm nervous. I'm, I'm wiggling. I'm squirming. I can tell. I can tell. Good. That's how we want you. Okay. Favorite animal. Oh, a monkey would be. <laughs> a monkey. I don't know. I don't know why that's so funny to me. A monkey. A monkey. <laughs> this is a hot topic in my house, so that's why I had that answer right ready. We just had this discussion. So a monkey, that would definitely be mine. Like Curious George? Like that you'd want yeah, the monkey to like hang out and like get into mischief and... Yeah, like, yeah. And, and, I, and I just think the way they move is really cool and that they play and groom each other and that they swing and all that stuff. I just love it. 
I don't know why I find that just amazing and hilarious <laughs> and revealing. So revealing. I want, I want, My daughter is right. I want to know what <laughs> I want to know what your favorite animal is. It is not a monkey. I'm sad. Is to it say. a cat? Okay. I grew up on my grandfather's prop, like farm property. Um, and they didn't keep animals, but they had like a pack of dogs, the dogs that were, they were all mutts. Um, and we were all like, I think they were born when I was two. So I grew up with this pack of, of dogs. Um, Susie, Lucy, Zorro, Lady, Blackie, and Smokey and Tank. That, and that's is a pack. That's, that's so many. That is so many. And, um, so like I still, when you talk about your imaginary friends, I, I still believe that I, I have this pack of like ghost dogs with me at all times. Um, got a wolf pack. <laughs> I got a whole wolf pack, but it's been, you know, like, like my, between my third and fourth years of university, I got a cat, this little kitten named Stan Lee. And, uh, and I had him for 17 years. He moved out here with me to Vancouver. Um, he was with me through, you know, incredible loss and also um, incredible like joys. Uh, he was just a presence and he really converted me. Uh, and, um, and now I have like these two cats that are like dogs. Like they love to snuggle and they chase balls and stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, but I don't know if that makes me a cat person. I think if I were an animal, I would be a cat. Yeah, that's the um, one you identify with. Yeah, well, they have a clean indoor bathroom. They demand food. They're immediately given it. You know, they spend all their days either napping or, you know, getting really, like, nice little little pets from people. So, yeah, independent. Yeah. And then they have jobs. They sit at the window and they look at the birds. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's would be what I would do if I were. But yeah, no, I, my heart really does belong to, uh, to dogs. My, my dog pack. So, yeah. Yeah. But monkey is the better answer. Monkey <laughs> is the best answer. Um, tied only with Julia Sarah Stone, who had owls as, as her answer. Oh, yeah. Owl. Owls. Very revealing. I could see why my daughter wanted this one on the quiz. <laughs> okay. I, how do I want to end? Do we want to end with time travel or do we want to end with what the fuck? Let's end with what the fuck. Okay. Okay. So do you have, what the fuck? This is actually my life moments in your career. You know, if so, when did those happen? What the fuck in the good way? Not what the fuck <laughs> in the bad way. I'm not an actor, clearly. <laughs> uh, um, you know those moments when you're looking around and you're like, I, I cannot believe that this is actually my life. I think, I think honestly, though, for me, it's not so much about, I, well, okay. I think now I, I have those moments when I'm on Wind Calls the Heart because I really, there was a moment years ago where I had this really clear kind of thought where I said, I really want to be on a show that runs for a long, long time, many, many years. Yeah. I, I just want to know what that experience is like. What does that do to you as an actor? Like, what does that do for you as an actor? How do you, how, what does that do for you 
with your character when you're playing a character for that long what does that do for you with your relationships with your fellow actors if you're on a show for that period of time and so to now be in the middle of that I suddenly go this is amazing this is what I was always wondering about and I'm having this experience and it is so rare it is so rare to get to season eight of anything and so I feel like that for me is a bit of a moment going what the fuck how did this happen this is amazing this is exciting and then personally I I feel like I'm at this stage in my life where I always kind of felt like was going to be my moment of, I sort of always felt like I was going to hit my stride in my mid thirties, 40 timeline of where I was going to have, I was going to have my family and I was going to have my kids and I was going to have my career and they were all going to be kind of happening in a, in a, really exciting way and I feel like that is happening for me where I've got the pieces of my life puzzle and it it fits together so well Mm. kind of exactly as I envisioned it as actually exactly as I imagined it and also even better how do I get that to Pascal I want that. I want that for everybody who comes on that show. I want that for everybody who is listening, for people to feel um, self-actualized and content, you know, with with where they are in the moment. It's a it's hashtag goals. It honestly is. Yeah. <laughs> I am feeling that right now because I wanted to speak with you so long. So much appreciation for you coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy that we got a chance to chat and I loved the questions. I felt like we talked about so many, so many different things. Yeah, this is, um, this is a monster episode and I'm excited to unleash it to the world. Uh, (laughs) And I'm going to unleash, I'm not going to cut it into two episodes. I'm just going to put it out there. Pascal Hutton, where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on all the social meds? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know my hashtag or my handles, but if you just type in, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And if you type in my name, the right handle will pop up. Okay. I'm pretty sure that on Twitter, you are Hutton Pascal. Yeah. Um, Okay. And then, then the other one must be P Hutton. I think, I think Instagram is P Hutton. That's where it's kind of confusing. They're different. And I just, and neither of them honestly are great. It's not, I wish it was just at Pascal Hutton and I could say that, but I think back when I was doing it, I didn't know that Twitter and Instagram were going to become what they have since become Mm. in personally or professionally. And I would have maybe chosen more wisely. (laughs) <laughs> okay. If you're completely confused, I will have links to uh, Pascal's uh, Instagram and Twitter profiles in the footnotes for this episode, as well as the theme song for the gummy bears. And also links to articles that I've written about you before over the years. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Pascal. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And also, thank you to our listeners. Please like and subscribe if you are so inclined and leave us a review. They help us find even more listeners and then more people can come in on the conversation. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenscene. We just got the same one. 
for all three <laughs> social media things. No shade, Pascal. No shade. <laughs> the Wyvern Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger, Davile for the original music. Wyvern Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! In the current COVID-19 environment, UBCP ACTRA, the BC Performers Union in the film and TV industry, has been working closely with industry partners, formulating sensible and practical guidelines for all cast and crew to ensure working on set is manageable and safe for everyone. UBCP ACTRA has created a dedicated COVID-19 webpage at www.ubcpactra.ca where members can find mental health resources, financial assistance information, and back-to-work strategies and updates about the current status of film production in the province of British Columbia. UBCP ACTRA knows this has been an extraordinarily difficult time for many people, and we look forward to better days ahead. We will get through this together. Please visit www.ubcpactra.ca. A message from UBCP Actra.